0: From stand back and stand by to standing in prison for 17 years, the lead starts right now. Actions and consequences, a hefty prison sentence today for a rioter in the January 6th attack as Donald Trump himself continues to try to stay out of jail with a new not guilty plea, his fourth in a criminal case just this year. on the run with, quote, nothing to lose, the manhunt right now for a convicted killer and the search expanding near a major East Coast city. And Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas finally disclosing fancy trips and private jet rides paid for by a Republican mega-donor. Thomas's excuse for not making the disclosures public in the past. Coming up. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our law and justice lead and a not guilty plea from Donald Trump in the sprawling 2020 election case in Fulton County, Georgia. The former president, of course, faces more than a dozen charges there, including racketeering for his alleged efforts to steal Georgia's electoral votes, despite Joe Biden winning the state over and over. It is still unclear when Trump will go on trial in this case. Fulton County District Attorney Fani Willis has asked a judge to schedule a trial for all 19 defendants, including Donald Trump, for October 23rd of this year. That's less than two months away. Today, Trump formally asked to separate his case from the co-defendants who are asking for a speedy trial and other co-defendants that are trying to get their cases moved to federal court. We'll get to all of that in a moment. But first, today, one of the longest sentences yet for a January 6th rioter was handed down. Joe Biggs, a leader of the so-called... Proud Boys, was sentenced to 17 years in prison. Biggs plotted with other members of the far-right militia to storm the U.S. Capitol, and he led a group of violent rioters to the Capitol on January 6th. Let's get straight to CNN's Sarah Murray. Uh, Sarah, Biggs was convicted on se- serious charges, including seditious conspiracy or conspiring to overthrow the U.S. government.
1: That's right. And that's why he has ended up with the second longest sentence of all of the rioters. Longest so far has gone to one of the leaders of the Oath Keepers. Prosecutors actually asked for 33 years behind bars for Biggs. The judge, though, said, you know, they had to take into consideration how other rioters had been sentenced in their cases. And Biggs did make a tearful appeal to the court today, essentially saying he wants the ability to be able to pick his daughter up and take her to school. And the judge essentially said, look, you guys, as part of the Proud Boys were part of the, the group that broke the tradition of this peaceful transfer of power and then issued a hefty sentence to go along with that, Jake.
0: Yeah, a lot of violent criminals have kids they'd like to pick up at school instead of serving their sentence. Let's turn to the Georgia case now. Not only did Donald Trump plead not guilty today, Uh, but he is asking to have his case separated from his co-defendants. Tell us why.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, a number of his co-defendants, Ken Chesbrough, Sidney Powell, attorneys who were working for uh, Donald Trump's campaign after the 2020 election, have asked for a speedy trial. This is looking like it's shaping up to be October of this year. In a filing today, Trump's attorney Stephen Sadow said that there's no way that that Donald Trump and their team are going to be ready to go to trial in October. Uh, Sadow said he has another trial going on shortly before that, and, and they said it would essentially infringe on Donald Trump's constitutional right to force him to go to trial in that timeline. Again, we're still waiting for the judge to weigh in on this. Other than the folks who have asked for this speedy trial, we haven't really heard from the judge about how he plans to handle the other defendants in this case. And I think it's still an open question whether Donald Trump is actually going to go ahead with this case in state court or whether he's going to try to move this to federal court like we've seen his former chief of staff try to do.
0: All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much for that update. I want to bring in Michael Moore, former U.S. attorney in Georgia. Michael, good to see you again. So there are a number of co-defendants who have not waived their court appearance or entered a plea. Is there any benefit for them to physically go to the arraignment versus entering a, a plea through a court filing, as so many others have done?
2: Well, I'm glad to be with you today. There's really no benefit at all to going to court, uh, the, the courts have gotten a little bit lax, especially since COVID, in allowing defendants to, who are represented at least to be able to waive arraignment. Arraignment is really a time when defendants are told what they're being charged with, what the ramifications of the proceedings may be, given some of their constitutional rights and protections. For those people who don't have a lawyer, you know they're told at that time they have a right to have a lawyer, and they usually fill out forms to have a public defender or someone else appointed to represent them. So uh, in this case, there's no real reason. It probably inures both to the benefit of the state and to Trump, for, to the state on the one hand, because it sort of keeps some of the circus that we saw with the surrender down and uh, doesn't disrupt the city. And for Trump, it keeps him from being really uh, uh, appearing again as a defendant in a case. It's one less time that he's on camera, sort of sitting at, at, at the surrender table in a courtroom. So Um, I I wasn't surprised to see this, nor am I surprised to see some of the motions that are going back and forth.
0: So earlier today, Trump asked to have his case separated from his co-defendants who want that speedy trial. Uh, Mr. Trump's attorney claims they wouldn't have sufficient time to prepare for a trial at the end of of October. Um, Is that a
2: strong legal argument? I think it's a great argument, and I don't think there's any possibility that he'll be tried in October. Remember that the special purpose grand jury working under the direction of the district attorney met for about eight months to consider the case, and she's been investigating this particular case for about two and a half years. So you can think about the volume of material out there. Um, And the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution gives every defendant a right to have effective counsel. And so you can't be effective uh, if you don't have time to prepare and so it, by sort of lobbing this argument out there uh, his lawyers doing the right thing and saying look I, if, if you don't give me time to prepare, I'm not effective and that sets up a possible appeal should there be a conviction I just as a practical matter that there's no way the judge is gonna hold him and his right under the Constitution to be prepared to, to that date but even though the court is bound uh, now that there's been a request for a speedy trial filed by some defendants, that case has to be heard, has to be started in October or else as a matter of law, those defendants would be acquitted and found not guilty. So it wasn't really a a move by the DA or a move by the court. Uh, The law says the case has to start then. And simply because two or three people may want to avail themselves of that right under the Speedy Trial Act, that doesn't mean that the constitutional rights to have more time and sufficient time to prepare Uh, would be infringed on. So I I just think there's no way he'll be tried in October.
0: So Republican state lawmakers in Georgia had called for a special session to investigate the district attorney, Fonnie Willis' handling of the case. Uh, Today, the governor of Georgia, Republican Brian Kemp, he shot down the idea, saying it might be unconstitutional. Take a a listen.
3: The bottom line is that in the state of Georgia, as long as I'm governor, we're going to follow the law and the Constitution regardless of who it helps or harms
0: politically. Quickly, if you could, uh, what do you make of some of these actions targeting District Attorney Willis?
2: Well, I, I think the Republican lawmakers have gotten sort of caught on their own hook. Uh, they, they passed this law to where they could have this uh, Prosecute Attorney's Commission review prosecutors who they claimed weren't doing their jobs. Part of what they had to do was move forward on cases where probable cause have been found and present cases to the grand jury that where they were asking to issue an indictment. And and she's done that in this case. So from a political standpoint, she's done exactly what she is to do under the law. I think you're hearing a lot of puffing. You're hearing a lot of PR moves by some members uh, at the state capitol uh, simply because they come from districts that may be eating up this red meat. But the idea of stopping a budget process or impeding the budget funding for prosecutors across the state would essentially freeze law enforcement and uh, and freeze criminal prosecutions, and that's just not going to happen. I think Kemp knows that, uh, and and he's right to not call the special session. I don't think it's the end of the drumbeat that we're going we'll hear for some time, but there's no chance that, that, that that's going forward right now. All right,
0: former U.S. Attorney Michael Moore, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Turning now to our politics lead today, the Capitol physician said that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, is, quote, medically clear to continue working. Uh, you may recall the 81-year-old had a second freezing episode yesterday. It was the second one in two months. He paused Did you hear question, for about 30 seconds or so after being asked a question. It leads to bipartisan concerns about his health, as CNN's Manu Raju sorry, reports right? for us now. McConnell's team is trying to reassure his allies that he is, in fact, fit for the job. Re-election this
4: is the moment. Mitch McConnell freezing again. And that pause opening up a new round of questions. The key one. Can he continue to serve as Senate GOP leader? This after the second time in his many months, he froze in front of cameras, Prompted concerns about the 81-year-old Kentuckian's health.
5: Senator Daniel Cameron,
6: uh, do you have a comment on Daniel Cameron? Well, I think these other to be very close.
4: Behind the scenes, McConnell has sought to reassure allies he can continue the job he's held for 16 years, longer than any Senate leader in history. And today, McConnell's office releasing a letter from Brian Monahan, the Capitol's attending physician, clearing him to continue with his schedule. In saying it is not uncommon to suffer occasional lightheadedness for people who suffer concussions, as McConnell did when he fell and hit his head at a Washington hotel in March, sidelining him for nearly six weeks. His confidants believe he will remain as leader through the end of next year. But Republican senators and aides tell CNN they are skeptical he will remain in the job in 2025, potentially opening up a leadership race between Senators John Thune. John Cornyn and John Barrasso. After the first time he froze in July, GOP senators supported him staying as leader, but many would not say if they'd back him in the future. Do you think that Senator McConnell should run for leader in the new Congress? Well, I mean, the new Congress is 18 months away. Do you think he could next Congress, if he ran for leader, he would get the job?
7: Well, I, I think that that's speculation that's not necessary right now. After his Wednesday
4: event in Covington, Kentucky, McConnell called key allies, including Thune and Cornyn, and attended a fundraiser for Senate candidate Jim Banks, who told CNN that the Republican leader was sharp and engaging.
6: I'm fine.
4: The question about McConnell's health is bound to intensify when he faces his 48 GOP colleagues next week for the first time since before the summer recess. Should he tell it? his 48 colleagues what I, I, happened. I, I, he should tell us if something else, something bigger is going on. Um, and whatever he
8: tells me, I'll trust
4: to be true. Some Republicans fear that the impact of McConnell's fall in March could be worse than he has let on.
9: You know, obviously the fall he had was, uh, was more... Um, if that's, if that's what it's connected, is more damaging than most people thought. Yeah. Do
4: you think that he should stay as leader of the Senate Republican? That'd be up? for the Senate to figure out. All of this putting a spotlight on an aging Senate, where a majority of senators are in their 60s and 70s. Now, there is no way for senators who are critics of Senator McConnell to try to force a vote to oust him from the leadership position. The next leadership election would not occur until November 2024, after the elections. And Jake, Mitch McConnell will face his colleagues for the first time on Tuesday night at a conference, in a meeting with his leadership team and the full Republican conference next Wednesday.
0: All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Turning uh, now to... um Longtime McConnell ally and uh, Republican commentator Scott Jennings. Uh, Scott, good to see you. Uh, I know this is this is sensitive. Nobody likes to see uh, people go through health issues like this. Um, You were with McConnell at at a fundraiser uh, last night. Um, How was he and how do you reconcile how he was last night with the video of him freezing up uh, for 30 seconds or so?
10: Yeah, it was business as usual last night. I was here in Louisville. Uh, he attended a, a fundraiser for Jim Banks, who's running for Senate in Indiana, and he made uh, remarks about policy, politics, and took a bunch of questions from the attendees. Had If you hadn't known something had happened earlier in the day, you, you would never have suspected it. It was a uh, normal Mitch McConnell at the event last night.
0: How do you reconcile that with what we saw, and do you think that McConnell and his team need to being more transparent, as some Republican senators are even calling for, about whatever is going on. Yeah,
10: I mean, obviously, as someone who's known him, uh, you know, for for my whole life and uh, you see things like this, you know, it's personally concerning. Of course, I have the benefit of being able to talk to him and see him up close and observe him. And I've seen him the entire month. And, you know, he's been on a quite a robust schedule here in Kentucky, spoke at several big events He's been doing these political events. He's been meeting the press. I mean, he's doing all the things you would expect him to do. And I've seen him in action. In fact, the day before yesterday, I saw him speak at a lunch and make fifteen minutes worth of remarks, take a bunch of questions, and so um, it, it is hard to, to reconcile. But at the same time, this afternoon when I saw the letter come out uh, from the Capitol physician Monahan, uh, I knew that Senator McConnell had uh, sought the advice of a physician. I was glad to see that letter come out, and I think you know that'll give people a lot of confidence that he's okay to keep doing what he does, which is be an effective uh, leader for the Republicans in the Senate.
0: It it is interesting, though, that McConnell's aides, uh, when we saw that video, they they did not seem surprised um, that this happened. Uh, Do they know more than than we're hearing publicly? Does this happen more often than the twice we've seen it publicly? I don't think
10: so, actually. Uh, I'm not aware of any other instance of it, have not heard of any other instance of it. And I would also note that in both instances, he then started taking questions again almost immediately after. And then for the rest of those particular days, he kept up the rest of his schedule. Uh, I had a private conversation with him last night, one on one. We talked about several different things. I didn't notice any difference whatsoever following the incident yesterday. So, no, I, I don't think there's anything else to know except a couple of these things happened. Apparently, the capital physician says it's not unusual when you're recovering from a concussion. Uh, to have uh, these things happen intermittently, but it apparently uh, uh, doesn't impair him in any way. And I have not detected any impairment, any lack of cognitive ability, any memory issues. And and also over the course of the year, his hearing has been getting better and better in, in uh, conversations. I, it was, I think, had given him some trouble after the concussion, but I think it's been improving quite a bit lately as well.
0: All right. Well, we all hope his health improves. Scott Jennings, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, that search for an escaped inmate, a man convicted of killing his ex-girlfriend. He is now... On the run. Plus, weeks after the wildfires in Hawaii, the confusion, the anger, the resentment as Maui residents question if their nightmare could have been avoided. And front row to history, I'm going to speak with Nebraska's head coach and star player after that world record for attendance set at their volleyball match. Stay with us. In our national lead, right now. Dozens of law enforcement agencies near the city of Philadelphia are frantically searching for a convicted murderer whom police warn is extremely dangerous. CNN's Danny Freeman is in Philly for us. Danny, this escapee uh, was just uh, convicted of first degree murder charges two weeks ago.
11: Yeah, that's right, Jake. Just convicted two weeks ago, of those first degree murder charges, and just sentenced to life without the possibility of parole last week. Now he's on the run, and now there's this multi-agency manhunt for him. Let me tell you how this all started, though. Law enforcement say that inmate Danilo Cavalcante escaped this morning at 8.50 from the Chester County Prison. That's about uh, 30 miles or so west of where we are in Philadelphia right now. He was last seen, though, around 9.40 a.m., right around the area of the prison wearing a white t-shirt, gray shorts and white sneakers. And Dick, that's important because uh, law enforcement said that's different from the normal green prison garb that he normally would be wearing. And I just wanna emphasize exactly why uh, law enforcement have been using such strong language when warning residents and when speaking about this particular suspect, like you said, convicted of first degree murder uh, a little over two weeks ago and he was found guilty of stabbing his girlfriend back in 2021 to death 38 times in front of her children. And Jake, the motive for that killing, according to prosecutors, was the girlfriend found out that he was wanted for murder in Brazil as well. So that's why law enforcement really urging a lot of caution for residents around the area of that Chester County prison. Take a listen to what the DA of Chester County said about this just a few hours ago.
12: His
13: depravity knows no bounds. I mean, this is someone who has nothing to lose, as you indicated, so I don't know what he's capable of doing. If he's already engaged in a murder in broad daylight in front of her two children, there's no stopping him from doing anything more egregious.
11: And, Jake, at this point, like you said, dozens of agencies now searching. They're using canines. They're using drones. They're using helicopters. And we're still waiting at this point for a concrete answer to the big question of how he got out. So far, law enforcement officials not giving us any details. Jake.
0: So they're not giving any details about how he got out. Chester County uh, Prison, I mean, that's a, that's a tough facility. It's not easy to walk in and out of it. Do we, do we have any idea how he managed to escape?
11: No, listen, the acting warden of that prison came out in that press conference earlier today and said we're not going to take any questions, we're not going to talk about how he got at this point. It's still under investigation, but you can bet if this uh, manhunt certainly continues into the night and into uh, the next day, we've seen other manhunts in Pennsylvania just this summer that have done that, you can bet that there are going to be more questions about how this all happened. Jake? All
0: right, Danny Freeman in Philly, thanks so much, appreciate it. This just into the lead, we are learning of an incident involving multiple stabbings at the Fulton County Jail in Georgia. Earlier images so f- of that facility in the weeks past. That is, uh, of course, the same jail where former President Donald Trump uh, surrendered last week in Georgia's election subversion case. Coming up next, the governor of Hawaii will be here. Uh, we'll have him respond to the heartbreak and now the anger and mistrust for so many victims of those devastating wildfires in Maui. Uh, Continuing with our national lead, CNN staying focused on the damage and heartbreak caused by the Hawaii wildfires. The official death toll standing at 115, with hundreds of residents still unaccounted for. Property losses are estimated at $6 billion. And there are questions about the response, or lack thereof. Who's to blame and when survivors and businesses can start to rebuild. As CNN's Natasha Chen discovered, residents are skeptical of what the government is telling them.
13: It's hard. It's hard to take in. Seeing all this devastation. Even as Lahaina fire survivors take stock of what's left of their historic community.
8: Make me cry. Make me cry.
13: Officials are trying to identify the bodies of those lost, but it is a mystery at the moment how many are still missing. Right now, they're investigating about 100 missing person reports.
8: I'm like, oh, okay, today's going to be a good day. I'm not going to cry. You hug the first person and that's all
13: you want to do is cry. Kalaya Suela says her Lahaina home is still standing, but has no idea what condition it's in. She's with her family in temporary housing, not living, she says, just existing. I don't want to be angry and I don't want to be upset, but nothing's moving. The number of dead stands at 115, a number that hasn't moved in 10 days. Active search and rescue is over as federal agencies are now working to remove hazardous materials and debris to make it safe for families to return to their neighborhoods. Most Lahaina students have to either enroll at other schools on the island or take virtual classes at least until mid-October. The entire survival and recovery process has surfaced long-held skepticism and resentment toward outside authority, which many locals have historically blamed for mismanaging the land and water.
8: I directed my team to do everything we can for as long as it takes to help Maui recover, rebuild in a way that respects and honors Hawaiian traditions and cultures and the needs of the local community. We're not going to turn this into a new land grab. But who has he talked to? You know, who has he really
13: sat down with and said, what is it going to take? asuela questions whether this tragedy could have been prevented. Residents in the county of Maui are suing Hawaiian Electric, accusing the utility of not properly maintaining power lines that remained energized leading up to August 8th. The company says a downed power line in Lahaina seems to have sparked flames that morning, but says the cause of a fire that afternoon is still unknown. And while sirens have not previously been used for wildfires on Maui, new protocols will soon be shared.
2: As we go forward, we need to educate the public on what do they need to do when a siren sounds. And that includes our visitor population that will be unfamiliar as well.
13: Visitors who are currently avoiding Maui. The Hawaii Tourism Authority says they're losing $9 million each day, with a steep drop in daily passenger arrivals to the island. Local businesses are laying off employees.
14: We've had people cancel their reservations all the way through December of this year.
13: Air Maui has laid off seven dispatchers. Its seven pilots used to fly more than two dozen trips a day. Now they take turns making one or two flights a day. While island residents want tourists to stay away from burned areas, they need people to come visit the rest of Maui.
14: Most people who live on Maui have two jobs to sustain themselves, so they're not going
15: to be able to survive and pay their bills and their home mortgages on unemployment insurance. It just won't cut it.
13: You heard him mention mortgages there. There's some temporary relief in that department. The state of Hawaii says borrowers with a Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, FHA or VA mortgage are able to pause payments right now through early November. HUD says in many cases borrowers can reduce or suspend payments for up to 12 months by working with their lenders. But interest may still accrue during this time and the payments still have to be made up in the future. Jake.
0: All right, Natasha Chen, great piece. Thanks so much. Let's talk about it now with Hawaii's Democratic Governor Josh Green. Uh, Governor Green, good to see you. Uh, As you heard Natasha Chen just report, uh, there is a lot of mistrust uh, about what residents of Hawaii are hearing from authorities. Here's an opportunity for you to respond to the the skeptics.
9: What do they need to know? Well, I appreciate it, Jake. Uh, Of course, people are traumatized and we're in an era of mistrust, and I, I respect that. You know, I come at it more as a physician than as a politician, and people know that of me. We have to deliver services for people. This is a tragedy beyond anything we ever experienced. Uh, We already have gotten through, after 23 days, the recovery phase, and we have lost 115 souls, but we're starting already to also look at the rebuilding. I know people worry that they're going to not be able to get into their properties. As soon as it's safe from the standpoint of the EPA, we want people in there so that they can get closure. We've already put 6,000 people out of the 12,000 people directly into hotel rooms or Airbnbs. Other people are staying with family. And even then, of course, people, you know, rightfully are, are traumatized. And so that trust question remains and we have to build trust like with all things. So we'll be building back. We want everyone to know that we'll only build Lahaina back when the people of Lahaina tell us how they want to do it, whether it's as a memorial, whether it's housing, like it was before the tragedy, they will tell us and nothing else will Uh, Suffice. Also, I want to share with people right now one of the things that we don't talk much about, uh, but we're doing, and that is we're doing everything we can to prevent predators from coming in, stealing people's land, buying it up at pennies on the dollar while they're struggling and suffering to pay their bills. We've actually made it a penalty a year in prison and up to $5,000 in fines for every time someone reaches out to try to take someone's property. And then finally, and this is an important thing I'd like to emphasize here nationally. Uh, I want to know, I want people to know that I'm concerned about outside interests coming in as predators in a legal way, and we're going to do what we can to protect against that too, not unlike we did as a country uh, with 9-11. We want to make sure that people who have damages are protected. So we're looking and studying how we can do that. Again, people should ask those hard questions about how they can trust, but I want them to get resources to build their lives back.
0: How much responsibility do you think the power company bears here for the fire?
9: Uh, It's a very good question. Two days in, which was on the 10th, I asked my attorney general, instructed her to do a comprehensive investigation. So she's doing that right now. She's brought an outside investigator in uh, from the mainland that has fire expertise. She's going to find out exactly how much. We do know that uh, that early fire was sparked, as as Hiko said. I don't want to jump to conclusions just because I don't think it's fair for me to do that. But we will hold everyone accountable 100 percent and we'll be very transparent about it. We'll release all the reports. I think that in the end of the day, we all have to acknowledge that this is a global problem. It was a very, very hot, dry, terrible storm. We are dealing with global warming here. We had six total fire emergencies from 1953 to 2003, and then we had six in the first two weeks of this month. So it's a disaster waiting to happen because it's so hot. But we'll get to the bottom of actual responsibility, and that will contribute to how we. Uh, try to bring some kind of financial closure to people for this tragedy.
0: So you just said, um, you just referred to the death toll, uh, which stands right now at 115 from the fires. Um, It's been a week since authorities in Hawaii said that 388 people were unaccounted for. Are you making any progress on those 388?
9: Yes, a great deal of progress. The formal announcement will be tomorrow from the FBI and the, the group that's working on this. It dropped immediately to 300 um, when we were able to separate people that were, for instance, incarcerated, or we did get people uh, calling us immediately when the names were released. The number of people that actually filed missing reports was closer to 112 or 115 to the Maui authorities. And of those individuals, a substantial number, more than half, were immediately found either to be tragically lost to the fire or discovered, and some in the hospital. So I think we're going to hear a number in the in the lower double digits tomorrow, uh, hopefully under 50. And it's not much consolation because our hearts are broken that we lost 115 people for sure. But it is something that we are grateful that it's not 800 or 1,000 like people were projecting earlier. Uh, but tomorrow we should have a much tighter number for everyone.
0: All right. Hawaii Governor Josh Green, thanks so much for your time today, sir. Appreciate it.
9: Thank you for supporting us.
0: Next on The Record, finally, with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, why he says it's taken him so long to disclose those private flights paid for by a Republican mega donor. Stay with us. In our Politics lead today, inadvertently, that word is used 16 times in a new nine-page financial disclosure statement from Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, describing information that he Inadvertently omitted on previous financial disclosure forms, both Justice Thomas and Justice Samuel Alito filed new disclosure statements today, giving new details about, among other things, trips they took but did not have to pay for. CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupik is following all this for us. Uh, Joan, let's uh, start with Justice uh, Thomas. What are we learning?
12: Okay, first of all, he came forward, disclosed officially that he had taken two sets of trips uh, at the expense of Harlan Crowe to Texas last year, and then also he had gone to his very luxurious resort in upstate New York in the Adirondacks, where it's like an adult playground with all sorts of, you know, fun things for, you know, fun, expensive activities that he had gone on that trip, which we had known that he had done that every summer, but this was the first time that he was, that Clarence Thomas was acknowledging this set of trips uh, that Harlan Crow had uh, provided for him in 2022. Flashback to 2014. Clarence Thomas also acknowledged in this filing today that in 2014, Harlan Crow had paid for, uh, he had bought three properties that the Thomas family had owned in Savannah, Georgia, and that this was the first time that Clarence Thomas was going to acknowledge that also.
0: Hmm. So reporting by ProPublica already disclosed a lot of this, right? right. Uh, it ignited a firestorm of criticism from conservatives About them, and also criticism from progressives and others about Justice Thomas. Um, His attorney's pushing back?
12: Yes, definitely. Remember the context of all this. There's been lots of questions about what should be disclosed, what should not be disclosed, and the court's general overall lack of transparency, and the fact it has no formal ethics code. So, what his lawyer said when he revealed these. these new filings, as you said, said that they were any mistakes were inadvertent. He also added a statement that kind of, I think, reflects the tone of what's going on now, Jake. The lawyer said, the attacks on Justice Thomas are nothing less than ridiculous and dangerous, and they set a terrible precedent for political blood sport through federal ethics filings. Hmm. You know, it just goes to show that, not just pushing back on the fact that he has to disclose these things, but also the atmosphere that um, his lawyer claims that this was all coming from just political enemies going after Clarence Thomas. But these are these trips and travel and private jet, uh, opportunities other justices have at times disclosed them themselves.
0: Yeah. Tell us what about uh, what's in uh, Justice Samuel Alito's financial Okay.
12: Disclosure. Nothing as glamorous, but he has t- taken several trips at the, on the dime of several institutions. The most mo- notable for us is something that uh, our colleague Devin Cole had written about earlier, where he took a trip to Rome in 2022 to give a keynote speech by a conservative, uh, and it was the Notre Dame Religious Liberty Initiative. And that's a group that whose clinic will often Filed briefs at the court urging more religiously conservative outcomes. Now, that was a speech that I think we even showed on this show, uh, where it was right after the Dobbs ruling against uh, uh, rolling back Roe v. Wade. And it was a very provocative speech that Justice Alito had made.
0: Indeed. Joan Biskupik, thanks so much. Coming up next, store bought weapons of war. We're going to take you to Ukraine next, where a team of women. Are learning how to retrofit and fly simple drones that are having a huge impact on the battlefield. Stay with us. Tragedy in South Africa tops our worldly today. At least 12 children are among the 74 people killed in a blaze that broke out in the middle of the night in a crowded building in Johannesburg. Daylight brought scenes like this: shattered glass everywhere, as responders. Recovered dozens of charred bodies, authorities say it was a, quote, hijacked building, a structure abandoned by landlords and leased to migrants illegally, which often creates incredibly unsafe and unregulated living conditions. The former mayor of Johannesburg says the deaths were, quote, totally unnecessary. Listen.
16: This, for me, it's made a capable homicide because it, it was bound to happen.
0: Now to Ukraine. In the midst of grueling ground battles, Ukraine's military has launched an all-out assault from the skies. Late Tuesday and early Wednesday, Ukraine carried out its biggest drone attack on Russia to date, targeting six regions, including Moscow. Today, Russia says it shot down a Ukrainian drone, again headed to Russia's capital city. As CNN's Christiane Amanpour reports for us now, these drones come in all shapes and sizes, even The retrofitted, store-bought models can destroy Russian weapons worth millions.
14: Any support is welcome in Ukraine, especially if it appears blessed by Jesus, say these drone students set up in an abandoned church working on their simulators and convinced their cause is just. We do whatever we can now to resist because
5: Russians want to kill all called us. This is genocide.
14: Next door, in the construct and repair class, Yulia solders and tweaks and teaches. This part is fairly simple and fun, she says. And did you study engineering? What are you in normal life? Mm, the writer and the film director. You're a writer and a film director. Yes. And now you're a drone operator. Yes. We're not allowed to disclose the location where Yulia and the others put theory into practice. Here in this innocuous-looking field, with a rudimentary obstacle course, this could almost be child's play, but with deadly results, of course. These are all civilian drones that the Ukrainians are repurposing for their current war effort. They can be bought off store shelves. But this signifies a turning point in the conduct of modern warfare. A $500 drone that's been weaponized can take out vehicles and weapon systems worth millions software engineer Lyuba Shipovic started the Victory Drones initiative.
6: The most advantage is it's uh, one of the most cost effective uh weapon uh, and it's also a weapon and it could be used as reconnaissance. Uh, for reconnaissance uh, purposes uh, uh, if you see the enemy you can hit enemy you can hide uh, uh, like your soldiers uh, so it's pretty but
14: enemy can see you.
6: Uh, Yeah, if you uh, don't use uh, security measurements.
14: Like hiding or disguising their signals, because the Russians are adapting fast. She says they're mostly crowdfunded and have deals with the Ukrainian military to train frontline troops, tens of thousands so far, in what's become indispensable strategy. That was just practice, dropping a water bottle full of sand but just a few days ago, the group says one of their former trainees took out this Russian tank on the Eastern Front. They can also wipe out artillery positions and troop carriers, How long did it take you to learn to fly? Many of these citizen soldiers are women, busting stubborn myths. And Yulia, of course, agrees. In fact, she assembles the drones, her husband flies too. And a
5: lot of women have taken up this fight. We are all people and we are fighting for our existence.
0: And Christian, we've heard conflicting reports on the status of the Ukrainians counteroffensive. Western officials have privately expressed frustrations that the counteroffensive is moving slower than expected. And now Ukrainian officials and even Russian military bloggers say that the counteroffensive is actually making progress if gradually. Uh, What's your reporting?
14: Well, we're hearing the same as those Ukrainian officials and the Russian bloggers and others are saying. And actually, I've been talking to a lot of military analysts as well, both U.S., U.K., NATO types, who are all saying don't count the chickens before they hatch. This does take time. It's very, very difficult. The Russians have laid incredible defenses and several layers deep, trenches, mines, uh, all all of that. And so it takes very methodical, uh, you know, Forced to get through it, and that's what they are trying to do, and that's why these drones are so helpful. These obviously are the civilian drones, and the ones you mentioned um, at the beginning are the military-type drones, which are going hundreds of miles into Russian territory now and causing damage. Not enough to win, but it's 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 enough to cause definitely political. You know, they're aiming for at least some political impact inside Russia as well.
0: All right, Christiane, um, I'm in poor and key for us. Thanks so much. Great to see you. Coming up, the defamation lawsuit that Rudy Giuliani forfeited. Why did he choose to not even contest the case? And what the mother daughter election workers who sued Giuliani think about the judge's decision? I'm going to talk to their attorney next. Welcome to the lead I'm Jake Tamper. This hour, 2024 rivals make their cases. Nikki Haley calls out Vivek Ramaswamy. Why, she says, the 38-year-old should get, quote, nowhere near the White House after comments he made about Israel and Iran. Plus, the price tag on disaster, new damage assessments from Hurricane Adalia as CNN teams reach some of the areas that were hardest hit. Leading this hour, however, former President Trump telling the Fulton County court he is not guilty on charges related to the fake elector scheme to steal Georgia's 16 electoral votes. Trump's plea today avoids another media spectacle by foregoing an in-person appearance next week. Today, Trump's legal team also formally requested to sever his case from the co-defendants who want a speedy trial. Let's begin today with CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Poland, who has been all over this story. Caitlin, why does Trump want to split his case from the others?
17: Jake, he has a couple of reasons that his lawyers are now putting forward to the court. They need time. They're busy. This case is complex. The sort of things that Donald Trump has been arguing in all of the criminal indictments that he faces. Here, though, in this situation, this is going to be quite a question for the judge handling this case going forward. How does this case go to trial? Does it get split up? Do defendants go to federal court? Do some stay in state court? All of those questions are going to be a real driving force of what's happening in the coming days and weeks here because there are defendants like lawyer Ken Chesbro, also another lawyer, Sidney Powell, that have quite uh, vocally said, yeah, we want to go to trial very fast, not like Donald Trump. And Trump is wanting to distance himself from them and potentially others in this group of 19 total defendants. The DA's office from Fulton County, they are already getting a trial date set on that calendar for October for Chesbro, at least, uh, and want to keep all of the defendants together. But watching how this goes forward is going to be really crucial in that Trump will keep arguing to push things back. There will be others who argue to split things out. uh, And Trump may want to separate from others, but it is a racketeering case with a lot of people involved. And so seeing how that functions now, especially now that not guilty pleas are Coming in and getting people on path to trial. That is going to be really something we're going to be watching over many, many days.
0: All right, Kaylin Polance, thanks so much. This just into CNN. A member of the far right Proud Boys will now stand back and stand by for 15 years in prison. He's the second member of the group sentenced today. Convicted of seditious conspiracy earlier this year. CNN's Evan Pettis is outside the federal courthouse in D.C. Evan, what did the judge have to say during this sentencing?
15: Well, Jake, uh, the judge repeated a a comment that he made at at the sentencing earlier today. He said that one of the things that the members of the Proud Boys did on January 6th was essentially rob uh, Americans of the tradition that we had of a peaceful transfer of power, something that we've lost and that we cannot regain again until perhaps uh, the next uh, time after another election. And in this case, uh, he said these men were part of what the, what the Proud Boys were trying to accomplish that day. He sentenced Joseph Biggs to 17 uh, years in prison. He was a, uh, an organizer uh, for the group in Florida. In the case of Zachary Real, he's gotten 15 years. The government was asking for uh, more than 30 years apiece for each man. Uh, they were convicted on charges including seditious conspiracy. They both uh, spoke to the court. They asked for some leniency. Uh, both of them uh, tearfully talked about what they were losing, essentially the, the chance to see their daughters grow up, uh, something that obviously uh, weighed heavily on everyone in the courtroom. But in the end, the judge pointed out that uh, these men uh, had taken politics and t- taken it to a new level and had caused uh, a great deal of damage to the American uh, legal system as a result of what they did, Jake.
0: All right, Evan Pevis, thank you so much. Another court loss for Trump wingman Rudy Giuliani, the disgraced lawyer making headline after headline after losing a defamation lawsuit from two Georgia election workers whom he smeared during the 2020 election and its aftermath. Giuliani singled out these two civil servants, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, falsely accusing them of tampering with ballots. Here's a reminder of just some of the deranged claims he made.
15: Tape earlier in the day, of Ruby Freeman and Shea Freeman Mars and one other gentleman quite obviously surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. I mean, it's outsta- it's, it's obvious to anyone who's a criminal investigator or prosecutor, they are engaged in surreptitious illegal activity again that day. And that's a week ago, and they're still walking around Georgia lying. Should have been, they should have been... Uh, should have been questioned already. Uh, Their places of work, their homes, should have been searched for evidence of ballots, for evidence of USB ports, for evidence of voter fraud.
0: Those comments were blatantly false. First of all, it wasn't a USB port, it was a ginger mint, a candy that they were passing and eating. Two, the votes had been counted multiple times with essentially the same results. So why did Rudy Giuliani continue to repeat this lie? Well, he was taking his cues from his former boss, then-President Trump. Here's part of the call Trump made to Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, trying to overturn the results. He he names Ruby Freeman.
3: We had uh, at least 18,000 that's on tape. We had them counted very painstakingly. 18,000 voters... Uh, having to do with uh, Ruby Freeman, that's uh, she's a vote scammer, a professional vote scammer and
0: hustler. Sure, is interesting language that Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani use about these two black women. As a result, both Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman say they've received death threats. Strangers have shown up at their doorstep in the middle of the night. Even Kanye West's former publicist uh, Trevion Coody apparently showed up to pressure them to lie. Saying they rigged the election for ball, Biden. Falsely, of course. But because of the previous threats against her, Freeman called the police in that case. At the suggestion of an officer, the women agreed to meet at the police station. Watch this moment from police body cam footage. I cannot
13: say what specifically will uh, take place. I just know that it will disrupt them and the freedom one
18: and one
0: Now, Giuliani did not contest in court that he made those false and defamatory statements. That isn't because he's apologizing for them. It's because he failed to respond to multiple subpoenas for information in the case. According to Giuliani, it costs too much to maintain electronic records. The judge was not amused, writing in a 57-page memo, quote, perhaps he's made the calculation that his overall litigation risks are minimized by not complying The judge went on to say, quote, withholding required discovery in this case has consequences. Regardless, the damage to both Moss and Freeman's lives has already been done.
14: I felt like it was all my fault. Like if I would have never decided to be an elections worker, like I could have done anything else. But that's what I decided to do. And now
4: people are lying and Spreading rumors and lies and attacking my mom. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security. All because a group of people starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay.
0: Now, following the ruling, both women expressed gratitude, saying in part, quote, what we went through after the 2020 election was a living nightmare. Rudy Giuliani helped unleash a wave of hatred and threats we never could have imagined. The fight to rebuild our reputations and to repair the damage to our lives is not over, unquote. Here with me is Michael Gottlieb, the attorney for Shay Moss and, and Ruby Freeman. We should know you're, you're representing them pro bono. That's right, Jake. OK. How are your clients feeling after the judge's ruling and, and how are they attempting to rebuild their reputations?
18: They're obviously um, very happy with the ruling. It is vindication of what they've been saying for two years now. And it is a recognition that um, their efforts, which have been truly courageous in being willing to stand up to very powerful people uh, while facing death threats, while having their entire lives upended, that their efforts meant something and that there will be accountability and that people like Rudy Giuliani can't just hide behind the judicial system and refuse to comply. Uh, so they're, they're happy, they recognize that there are more steps to be taken and that there's still a long road forward to repairing their reputations and uh, getting back to some semblance of normalcy in their life, but they're, they're very happy with the result.
0: It is odd, to say the least, to see a, a former U.S. attorney, somebody known for enforcing laws like Rudy Giuliani, not only as a defendant, uh, but is refusing to even comply with a court. Uh, and I'm wondering, Is this, do you think, in your judgment, because he is now just this bizarre person that says and does weird things, and so he is just not responding to a judge the way that normal human beings would, or do you think he's made the calculation, if I actually comply, then there'll be discovery, and then they'll find worse stuff, and so it's better for me just to have to pay, even if this ends up being $10 million, than showing my records, my electronic records, to a judge who might find worse things in there than defamation?
18: Well, we all say and do weird things from time to time, Jake, but I, uh, I can't possibly claim to inhabit the, the reasoning or mind of uh, Mr. Giuliani or his legal team on why they've chosen not to comply. What I can say is, um, based on what we found in the case from third parties and every piece of evidence that we have gotten in this case has been through clawing and scratching to get it. No one has just complied with the subpoenas that we've turned over to third parties, the various people who worked with Mr. Giuliani and his legal team during the campaign. We've had to fight for it, all of it. Um, and what I can say is that what we have gotten has been very helpful in proving our case, improving the agreement and understanding that uh, Giuliani reached with a number of other people to engage in this campaign against our clients. Um, so, as the court, I think, uh, rightly pointed out in, in its opinion, um, it's reasonable for you know for any reasonable person to infer that the reason he's not turning this stuff over is because it'd be harmful to his interests, whether here, with or with respect to other. Uh, uh, plaintiffs who are out there in the world or with respect to the criminal cases that are
0: pending. Right. They're criminal charges he's facing. Who knows what's in those electronic records? The judge says that Giuliani still owes $90,000 for Freeman and Moss's attorney's fees in the case. Obviously, it costs money to represent people, even if you're doing so pro bono. Uh, money he owes you. You told Caitlin Collins you're going to be pursuing damages in the, in the coming months. What action do you plan on taking? And do you think that your clients are going to see money from Rudy Giuliani? Because he seems to be claiming that he's basically poor.
18: Yeah, I mean, we'll follow the trail to the end of the earth to get some accountability for our clients here. And I'm confident that we will see money after we obtain a damages award. So where we are in the case now, there's been a finding of liability and the judge has, set, has asked for uh, the parties to set a trial date for damages sometime between November and February. And that is the point at which we'll be able to quantify uh, the harm financially that, has, uh, that our clients have suffered. Uh, and then, of course, we'll have to go out and try to enforce that. And it's not uncommon for many defendants out in the world to claim that they can't satisfy judgments that people receive. We saw Alex Jones try to do this with the Sandy Hook families. Mm. Um, you know, we would expect that uh, Mr. Giuliani will probably attempt to do the same thing. But we have the tools of the legal system available to us to uh, make sure we pursue whatever assets he may have to recover for our clients for whatever award we're, we're able to obtain.
0: So the judge noted, regarding the damages trial, uh, that the election workers, your clients, could try to show that Rudy's false claims were intended to make money for himself. Um, Is that part of the strategy?
18: Um, I mean, definitely, we can demonstrate and intend to demonstrate that um, much of the time when he was defaming our clients, he was doing so on his podcast, on his radio show. Those types of, uh, of media obviously bring with them advertising revenue, and uh, the sort of recognition and notoriety that comes along with being constantly in the news brings other additional opportunities Whether it's personal brand or whether it's um, You know uh, the revenue streams associated with a podcast or a radio show. So yes, that's part of the strategy is to demonstrate um, uh, to, part of the strategy will be to demonstrate that this was a money-making opportunity and that um, That money-making opportunity came at the direct expense of our clients
0: uh, Lastly when you hear the language that Trump and Giuliani used to defame your your clients. Hustler, uh, passing around the USB port as if it's uh, cocaine or heroin. Um, They're painting a very vivid picture. One might argue uh, engaging in racist tropes. Uh, What do you think of all that?
18: Uh, I think it's not a coincidence the language that was used um, and to be clear it was not a USB uh, no, it was a ginger <laughs> right. man yeah um, uh, but yeah, I think it's it's hard to miss the uh, the overtones that are associated with language like that in comparisons like that and it's you know I mean it's just if it's it's offensive coming from um, an individual that, you know, spent uh, a long career in criminal justice and understands that you're not supposed to make accusations about people without any evidence whatsoever for doing so. So
0: he seems to have forgotten a lot of that. It would appear so. Attorney Mike Gottlieb, thank you so much. And please send our best wishes to your clients. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. CNN is live on the ground in areas hard hit after Hurricane Adalia. Plus, a major question for many who live in storm prone areas. How long will insurance companies continue to cover Your properties. Then, one day after Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's latest freeze, the health and age factor complicating leadership in American politics right right now, the gerontocracy. We'll get into that. Stay with us. In our national lead, Moody's Analytics estimates the damage caused by Hurricane Adalia this week could reach $20 billion. Now, while that estimate is nothing compared to the nearly $113 billion loss from Hurricane Ian last year, it is important to remember these hurricanes are becoming more intense because the climate crisis is worsening. And there is another three months to go in this year's hurricane season. CNN's Gloria Pasmino is in Crystal River, Florida for us. Uh, Gloria, Crystal River City Manager told CNN that the area was decimated by the storm surge. What kind of damage are you seeing?
16: Well, Jake, you know, you mentioned those storms becoming more and more frequent and when you talk to the people who live in this area, you can tell that they are just changing the way that they prepare for these kinds of events. You see the street behind me is clear now it's open to traffic, but around this time yesterday, this was basically a river. The storm search had pushed in and all of the water started going into these small businesses here. We caught a glimpse of people who were uh, cleaning up earlier today, trying to just get stuff together as that water was finally But I want you to hear directly from one of these business owners. His name is Anthony Altman, and he owns an ecotourism company here. Uh, You know, Crystal River is known as the Manatee uh, capital of the world. And he told me that as he goes out into the Gulf every day on these stores, he had taken notice of just how warm the water was getting. The Gulf of Mexico is uh, warmer than it's ever been. And that way, he knew that these storms were going to be getting worse and worse. He told me that when he saw the forecast, he got a truck out here and packed all of his merchandise, moved it out, all in an effort to try and minimize the damage.
9: Being aware, living through storms in the past, uh, knowing the Gulf temperature was so warm, yeah. and just paying attention to the weather. Yeah. Yes.
5: You
16: felt that it. Could have been worse.
9: Absolutely. If we would have taken this head on, it could have been much more, much bad.
16: Now, devastation is much more significant to the north of us. That area is still really difficult to access. But Anthony has been hard at work cleaning up with his employees, uh, trying to get the place back up and running. He told me he's got 22 employees. He said that's 22 families that have to be fed. So he's really uh, looking forward to getting back on his feet as soon as possible. Jake.
0: All right. Gloria Pazmino in Crystal River, Florida. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is David Jones. He's the former insurance commissioner of California. He's currently the director of the Climate Risk Initiative at UC Berkeley. Uh, David, are there any sustainable solutions for people to rebuild their homes in areas where national disasters, natural disasters are becoming so common, especially in places such as the Florida uh, or California coastlines?
8: So there are a menu of approaches that will help with adaptation. Uh, First, um, following improved building codes uh, in areas prone to hurricane, that includes uh, impact-resistant windows and doors and garage doors, uh, tying roofs down, uh, using roofing approaches that are more impervious to wind. Uh, In areas impacted by wildfire, It's home hardening, including things like protecting the eaves of the home, using fire-resistant materials for the roofs of the home, defensible space, no attached structures. There are a series of things that a homeowner can do. Uh, We also need to make more investments in gray and green infrastructure. Um, In terms of green infrastructure, there are a bunch of nature-based approaches that can actually reduce the impact of storm surge, whether it's replanting salt marshes, replanting mangroves, oyster reefs, or in the context of wildfire risk better managing our forests by using prescribed fire and thinning. But fundamentally, what's occurring here, Jake, is that climate change is causing more frequent and more severe weather-related catastrophes, and the trend is only going in a bad direction. And what that means ultimately is we are marching steadily towards an uninsurable future. I wish I had better news for you, but the risks are simply climbing too fast and we're not doing enough to get at what the underlying driver is.
0: Right. So we've seen major homeowners insurance companies uh, either leaving or stopping renewing policies in places like California and Florida, all within the last year. In California, State Farm no longer accepting new applications. All states stopped selling new policies. In Florida, Farmers stopped offering its policies. AAA not renewing policies for some homeowners. What is the future of of coastal housing in just like the next Five or ten years, and do you think this is going to spread to other states beyond Florida and California?
8: It is a problem throughout the United States. It varies by geography. It varies by the nature of the climate-driven peril. But the trend lines are bad. Whether you're in the Midwest and you're suffering from increased flooding and increased losses due to convective storms, harder rains, basically more tornadoes, or in the West where you've got uh, impact due to wildfire, more frequent severe wildfire. Or along the coast, whether it's the Atlantic coast, South Atlantic coast, the Gulf coast, you name it, more severe storms, more storm surge, more flooding. All of this is contributing to more insurance losses. And even though states like Florida pass legislation which uh, create a taxpayer funded reinsurance facility, they allow rates about three or four times the national average. They've limited the ability to bring lawsuits, they've limited attorney's fees and lawsuits against insurers. Notwithstanding all this, as you said, farmers just about a month ago said, that's it. We're withdrawing entirely from the state of Florida. So the trend isn't good. More people are being thrown onto uh, what is called uh, fair plans or in the case of Florida, Florida citizens. These are state created, but uh, private nonprofit insurance companies, basically, that provide insurance of last resort for perils like wind or fire or flood. Where people can't get that insurance in the private market. In Florida, for example, the policy count for their Florida citizens for wind has gone up from about 480,000 in 2020 to 1.3 million in 2023. And that, I think, is the future if we don't move more aggressively to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which are driving climate change, which are driving these losses.
0: David Jones. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, even if it was horrible news. Um, Coming up, it's a regularly scheduled meeting set for next week, but there will be nothing regular about the extraordinary amount of scrutiny it's going to draw. And it could raise very important questions about the future leadership of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Stay with us. In our politics lead, one of the most powerful men in Washington today was deemed medically clear. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, yesterday froze while speaking. This is the second time this has happened in as many months. The U.S. Capitol physician today said that he consulted with Speaker, I'm sorry, with Leader McConnell and his neurology team, and McConnell is free to continue business as usual. There is chatter among some rank and file Republicans that They should try to force a special conference meeting to talk about their party's leadership after McConnell's latest incident. Either way, the Senate GOP conference will see McConnell next Wednesday at the usual weekly meeting. Let's discuss uh, with our panel. Uh, Alice, let me start with you. So after the latest freeze up, uh, Republican Senator Kevin Kramer told CNN that McConnell has a greater responsibility to be transparent when it comes to his health. Um, now after yesterday's freeze, do you think it's time that they... Do they need to be more outspoken about what's going on here?
7: Given the fact he is not just another senator, he is the minority leader. So I think there does lend itself to a higher level of transparency. But look... Across the board, there are a lot of people in D.C. that we need to show grace to their inevitability sure. of, of the aging. And if you are a party and you are lobbying attacks at the other side for being dazed and confused, whether we're talking about uh, President Biden or uh, Feinstein or McConnell or even uh, a Fetterman, you need to be able to look inside your own house and say, what are we doing with our elected officials in terms of, are they ready to do the job? And look, the reality is, if if any of these elected officials cannot stand up, speak up, and dress up for the part, there might need to be the question, are they the best person to represent their constituents and their colleagues?
0: Often this coincides with with aging, uh, but it's not a a correlation-causation situation. Uh, You are still relatively young, and you had, you had a brain surgery. Yeah. Uh, we've all been watching your recovery, and you seem to be back to 100%. Whether or not you feel that way, I don't know. Um, but I, I know you want to talk about this because you've gone through something similar.
6: Yeah, I mean, look, recovery is not when you've had a brain injury, right? It is not a straight line. And so I, th- I agree with what Alice is saying. We have to have some grace for people who are healing, like with John Fetterman. I mean, for me, when I was healing my brain was there. As you all know, I couldn't talk, right? And so how I communicated shifted for a while. And so, but that's different than if there is something medically seriously wrong that would prevent you from healing to a place where you can continue to do your duty. So I think we do have to have some grace, but it's fair to say if you're in a leadership position, and certainly if you're in a position, frankly, um, Of leadership where you could be running the country at some point i think it's important for there to be transparency
5: but you know there are a few things all going on at the same time one is that we have all of these octogenarians and in one case whatever you call 90 something who are like in office for a long time and the question is is it too long and all that stuff so that's going on that's a bipartisan thing there's also a huge division inside the republican party about whether mitch mcconnell is like the guy they want or not and Look, that's, that's a lot
0: of MAGA Trump stuff, though, right, isn't it? And I that's mean, like, a lot
5: of what's driving this they conversation think not, inside the Republicans. They think he's
0: not MAGA enough.
5: Yes. If you ask any other Republican, they will say Mitch McConnell has kept Republicans glued together, not just in the Senate, but in Congress for the last several decades. Can you imagine if Mitch McConnell wasn't here for the last 20 years? What a different course Republican politics would have taken. All that stuff. But th- there is a lot of jockeying going on. And then the third thing that's going on is that in most states, the governor gets to name the next senator, but Kentucky preempted all this because they have a Democratic governor and now there's a whole different chain of events that would take place if if Senator McConnell, if Leader McConnell decided not to stay through the end of his term.
0: And this also, we should note, this has been going on for quite some time. I mean, I remember Strom Thurmond, who lived to be like 100 or something, I think. I mean, he lived a long time. But I think it's fairly well known that the last decade of his time in the Senate, he was not 100 percent and maybe even was a little oblivious to what was going on, and, people were more, yeah. I don't know if you want to say polite about it, or yeah. they were more protective and less transparent about it. But, like, that was going on with Senator Cochran, it went, it went on. And it's still going on with Senator Feinstein.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I. would. I also think we have to remember these are human beings. They have families. They have lives. And I hope that their families are looking out for their health. I mean, politics is one thing, but I can say from having experienced it, you know, your life is more valuable than all the rest of this, right? You're not going to remember the last floor vote when you know you are. But also, Mitch uh, McConnell is showing none of those
5: signs. No, no. no. And so right. what I
6: wanted to say though is. If, if it's a matter of maybe he needs more time to heal, maybe that's what it is, and then he'll be found. Whatever it is, I hope they give him the space to do it and to figure out what needs to happen. And, and I, I think in this day and age of cameras
7: in your face everywhere you go, we're seeing a lot of this sure. in real time, uh, sometimes if they freeze. And, and that's a factor as well. We didn't have that as much with Strom Thurmond. But look, it's, it's really important to note, Mitch McConnell deserves a great deal of credit for what he has done uh, in his tenure as senator certainly uh, overhauling the Supreme Court. But at the end of the day, we can all sit here and talk about this. But this is up to the voters in his district in Kentucky. It's their decision whether or not they want him to continue.
0: Let's turn to the 2024 race. Today on the New Hampshire Journal podcast, uh, former Ambassador Nikki Haley uh, was asked if she would be willing to offer her vice presidency, if she were the nominee, uh, to Donald Trump. Take a listen.
10: I don't know who I'm going to offer it to, but I can tell you it's going to be the best person for the job. It's not going to be focused on whether the person is a man or a woman. It's not going to be focused on whether um, what race they right. are. It's not going to be focused on what's most popular.
0: Interesting answer. I mean, she <laughs> could have said No. She could have said yes.
5: Yeah. I mean, you can see it's, first of all, it sort of sounds like some of the calculus where you're trying not to turn off too much of the Trump base. But yes. also, I read this as uh, Nikki Haley going out of her way not to make this be the soundbite she made news on. Right. And also signaling to women that she wants to make clear that uh, she would be the top of the ticket. And if anyone, including Donald Trump, wants to vie for the number two role, she would entertain that. So much of her message in the last couple of weeks has been to. Uh, uh, center as well as right of center women uh, on everything from the abortion issue to the power issue. I just think she is angling for the suburban women's vote. And this is another yeah. example.
0: Something, she's, uh, nothing, um, something, uh, something else she said that made news. Uh, Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy told an Israeli newspaper that as president, he would not use the U.S. military to um, defend Israel against Iran. Uh, were that to happen. And now many of his opponents are criticizing him, including Mike Pence and Governor Chris Christie. Nikki Haley posted, Vivek must have missed that the fanatical terrorist regime in Iran regularly calls for death to America. If he doesn't see a nuclear Iran as a threat to American security, then he should take his place beside AOC and the squad and get nowhere near the White House. A lot of attacking Ramaswamy these days. What do you make of it?
7: Well, look, clearly she made that exact same point in the debate in Milwaukee, and he clearly didn't learn his lesson. Look, support for Israel is not just good politics, it's good policy. And the more we can support our greatest ally in the region, it's good for democracy and it's good for freedom across the world.
0: Coming up, the incredible... Thank you, one and all, for being here. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up, the incredible honor for Nebraska's women's volleyball team. More people showing up to their match last night Than any other women's sporting event ever in the entire world. We're going to talk to the team's head coach and one of their star players next. In our sports lead, see a red Red yesterday in Lincoln, Nebraska, where more than 92,000. And three volleyball fans at Memorial Stadium broke the world record for women's sports attendance. For the record, this is more people than the last time the stadium was packed in 2014 for a men's football game. The Nebraska Huskers beat Omaha at the game last night. Here with me to discuss is Huskers head coach John Cook and Allie Batenhorst, an outside hitter for the Huskers. Allie, first of all, congratulations on your win last night. How did it feel walking into that stadium with so many fans cheering.
19: Oh my gosh, there are no words to describe that moment. It was seriously surreal and Husker Nation so amazing and we're just so grateful for all the support we get here at Nebraska.
0: And, and John, we're talking about a world record, a world record. The last time we saw anything like this was in the United States, was at the 1999 Women's World Cup Soccer Final. What do you think this means for women's volleyball both here in the u.s and abroad
3: well based on the reaction i've seen uh, and i've heard from people all across the country coaches from other sports people i don't even know who are are texting and emailing this is a dramatic moment and i i remember the 1999 world cup i it was like yesterday i can still it's still etched in my mind the power of that moment i think this is another power moment for women's sports and what can be done and you know, I don't, I don't know if you're into the stats, but we now have the biggest crowd, including football, has never played in front of a, that big of a crowd in, in the football stadium. So uh, it's pretty epic, and uh, we've got a lot to be proud of, and it's, a, like I
0: said, it's a, it's a powerful moment. And an exciting sport. I remember uh, going to some of the women's games in the '96. Olympics, women's volleyball games of the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. But there are not many women's pro volleyball leagues here in the U.S., just two leagues and um, others in the works. Uh, this new record seems to show there is a clear passion for the sport among, among fans. Ali, uh, as a player, what do you, what do you hope comes out of this for athletes hoping for careers in volleyball?
19: Yeah, I just think It's growing so much, like you said, and I think now that we have the opportunity to potentially play professional sports here in the U.S. is just amazing, and having so much support here at Nebraska and just having that fan base really does show, like you said, the amount of support for women's volleyball and how much it's growing, and we're super grateful to be a catalyst for that change, and I think after college sports, it's so amazing, and I hope that it can... I really do see it succeeding with all the support we have for women's volleyball and the pro sports coming to the States, and we're super excited about that. So I really do think it'll really be a great thing for the women's sports.
0: Yeah, let's hope so. John, you've been with the Huskers for more than two decades now. What do you think is next for the team coming off such a high? <laughs> well, that that's what
3: uh, kept me awake last night as a coach, because uh, it was an unbelievable high moment and I think everybody's still walking on you know air today uh, and so now we've got it we have a big match uh, going to open a new arena down at Kansas State Sunday so now you know my job as a coach is to get us thinking hey we got more season here we're just starting and and uh, but we really really tried to soak it in and get our players to soak it in uh, because it was historic and it's never been done before at that level, and I think our players, I'm so proud of how they managed all the distractions and the interviews and everything going on, soaked in the moment, played a good volleyball match. And it's, like like we said, it's it's still unbelievable, but,
0: man, it was a, it was an amazing night. So exciting. But they got to get their head in their, the next game. I hear you. Huskers head coach John Cook <laughs> and Allie <laughs> Batenhurst. You heard the coach. You heard the coach. After this interview, back to work, back to work. Thanks so much.
3: Okay, thank you, Jake. Thank you.
0: A music lesson uh, legend, so transformative to rock and roll. A huge new production is profiling how he did it. This name may not be top of mind, but perhaps it should be. We're going to talk about him next. And our pop culture lead, the rock legend who discovered James Brown, gave Jimi Hendrix a spot in his band, and inspired Paul McCartney, steals the spotlight again in a new CNN film called Little Richard, I Am Everything, which reveals the oft-overlooked black and queer origins of rock and roll, and the man who brought the iconic genre to life. Here's a taste. Watching Richard see, I don't have to stand there, use the whole stage. Richard would work that audience,
9: get them up out of their seats, swaying, shouting, waving their arms, calling, responding, stuff.
0: Thirty dates, so I saw Little Richard thirty times. You know what I mean? Later on, I realised he was like doing church in a theatre in Northern England, basically. Joining us now is Crystal Shepard. She's a contributor to Billboard magazine. Thanks for joining us. So Elvis covered Little Richard songs. The Beatles imitated his style. How did this rampant appropriation affect Little Richard personally?
20: Um, I think a lot of it had to do with uh, he wanted, this is a theme through his life, is wanting to be acknowledged for what he's done. And uh, there's a difference between appropriation and obliteration. And I think sometimes Richard felt that he was being obliterated and not being given the acknowledgement of who did it first.
0: Little Richard performed drag in the South in the 40s and 50s, a time where such things were even considered crimes. Um, of course, uh, LGBTQ rights rights, are under attack again uh, with a record number of anti-LGBTQ bills introduced in the U.S. this year. How did Little Richard uh, navigate his identity throughout his life uh, as laws and public opinions on the gay community shifted?
20: Well, like everybody, it was an underground movement, if you will, and they couldn't be open about it. Um, It was much later in life that he would acknowledge that he was gay, but at the same time saying he was no longer a homosexual. But it's also the place where he learned to discover Little Richard. I mean, the, he copied a lot of the people that he hung out with and that whole drag queen thing. And, you know, everything old is new again. And he really learned how to express himself in terms of his own, uh, queerness, if you will, he never, I don't know if he really ever came to terms with it, but he enjoyed it and he learned from it. And sometimes he hit it, sometimes he didn't, but it's just kind of that con- multiple of contradictions within him.
0: Little Richard, uh, sadly died of bone cancer in May, 2020, uh, during the height of the COVID pandemic. Um, do you think his death, uh, reignited his fame in some
20: ways? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, he'd kind of left the building, if you will, just, you know, to retire and everything. And I think that the fact that we were all home, we were all paying attention, it just kind of opened up to a new generation. And they, you know, started to see who he was and who and how much of an influence he is. You can't have Prince without Little Richard. You can't have Little Nas X without Little Richard. And you can go on and on and on. And I think it's a wonderful thing that, well, you know, yes, his passing was sad, but the fact that he's going to be reintroduced to a younger generation is fantastic. And, you know, the pandemic was a perfect time to do that.
0: All right, Crystal Shepard, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Be sure to tune in. The all-new CNN film, Little Richard, I Am Everything, premieres Monday, at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, only here on CNN. Coming up next in the situation room, the request that Donald Trump's legal team is making today that could have a major impact on the case in Fulton County and the case alleging his role in a fake elector scheme to steal Georgia's electoral votes. Stay with us. When you work,
21: you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii.